Welcome to an episode of Crippled by Culture, where we talk about everything in life and related to the disability and chronically ill community. My name is Sean Gold, and I am an author, advocate, and nonverbal public speaker for the disabled community. To provide a quick visual description for accessibility, I am a black man with a white tracheostomy breathing tube in my neck. I am wearing a gray shirt, and that's all you can see on camera. Uh, the person off camera is who you hear speaking for me. This video is of a Zoom call with me and the person talking for me in one box and my guest in the other box next to it. Today, I would like to thank Terry Briscoe for being my voice in this episode. In this episode, we're talking about the intersections of disability and parenting from a non-disabled perspective. Before we get any further into the interview, I want to give a shout out to our partnering nonprofit festival for the series, Festability. As the media director, I help organize a wonderful event in St. Louis at the Missouri History Museum. We have so many activities and vendors set up all over with an amazing headliner for our main stage each year. It is the best event in St. Louis to celebrate your disability unapologetically while celebrating the Americans with Disabilities Act. Make sure you come out if you're nearby. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Thank you Festability for sponsoring the series. Now, back to the show. Now let's get into today, let's get to today's amazing guest. Andrea Brown is a non-disabled disability advocate and mom to an almost 10-year-old with Pitt Hopkins syndrome. Formerly working after-school education nonprofits, now a full-time caregiver, board member with the nonprofit Common Ground Society, feminist, anti-racist, and anti-ableist middle-aged white woman who is doing her best at unlearning a lifetime of privilege. Andrea, thank you for being here today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm so excited to finally meet you sort of in person slash virtually. We've chatted a lot online, so it's really cool to have a chance to talk to you. Would you mind giving us a visual description of yourself, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you already named the middle-aged white lady part. I'm 45. I am a white um, cisgender woman. I have dark brown hair parted down the middle and pulled back. I've got dark green glasses, a uh, orange shirt, and a blue, orange, and sort of light gray sweater on. Um, and definitely wearing sweatpants off camera, because if there's one thing I learned... <laughs> during the height of the pandemic it's what you can get away with <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate that um first do you identify with having a disability or chronic illness if so do you mind sharing what disabilities or chronic illnesses you have if not we could talk about your child's disability i'm excited to have my first parent interview very cool no and i super appreciate you having me on and i love being able to um to talk to you like this. So it's actually really interesting because um, due to, actually, I think it was due to my whole family having COVID back in February, we had to postpone our original time that we were gonna meet and you were gonna interview me. And actually since then, I've gone through a diagnostic process um, around being neurodivergent. And um, I'm not really gonna say too much in detail about it right now because it's it's, extremely new, like haven't talked to my family about it new, but um, it's incredible how uh, quickly I realized the strength in already being connected with the disability community and having a disabled daughter and how differently I'm receiving information now that more just gives me a lens on something I've been dealing with my whole life. Um, 
versus something that feels like, you know, a tragedy or something like that. So I will be excited to talk about it eventually. Um, and I'm just sort of thankful that I'm already a part of this community. Um, but yeah, happy to talk about my daughter's disability, if that makes, if that makes sense. Thank you very much um, for that answer. Um, can you tell me what made you consider having an advocacy career among disabled community? Yeah, I mean, it it really just happened organically. Um, my past career um, in working in nonprofits and education kind of prepared me for it in a lot of ways, because um, I've always cared a lot about kids in particular and youth and the power of youth voice. And I think um, having a daughter who is disabled and as much as uh, I hate the labels that are put on people, but they're Sometimes it is easier to just uh, describe that because she's non-speaking, um, because she has mobility challenges, so she uses a wheelchair, um, because there's intellectual disability, she is sort of on the more severe end. And that's academically what she's considered like in the, the severely disabled classroom. Don't love the labels, but again, just to explain. And so, there, there's such marginalization there, right from the minute she was born. And I can talk more about that later, but so it sort of felt like um, once we as a family really settled into like our new kind of unexpected life. Um, and once I really got more of a lens into, you know, the harm done to the dis disability community, disabled kids and, I think really it's once school started for her, I think going into kindergarten and realizing just how much bias um, and segregation and all of that, that there is in the school system, that's where it all clicked, where I had a background working in and with schools, um, but hadn't been a parent yet. And then now as a parent and going into schools, and realizing how much seems sort of stacked against my kid from the get-go, that mm. that's really what led to feeling like there, there was no choice. And now I kind of feel like it's all lined up and I'm, I'm definitely where I'm meant to be. Gotcha. Um, how does the disability affect your child's everyday life? Um, so like I said, she's, she's um, pretty, she's very visibly disabled, I'll say for one, which, doesn't bother me. To, it means nothing to me. She's my kid just, and I, she has a big sister as well. You know, they're both just my kids, but you know, she uses a wheelchair. Um, and so I would say there's certainly that, um, when there's a really visible disability, a physical disability, there's everything that you expect to go along with that. Um, in terms of attention from people or lack of attention from people because they don't know kind of what to what to do or how to respond. Um, and, you know, she, so she is non-speaking. She has Pitt-Hopkins syndrome, as you mentioned, which is like a, it's a, a super rare, like ultra rare chromosomal condition. So she's basically just missing a huge chunk of genes, um, which, affect lots of things about how she moves and um, her vision and her um, just sort of all kinds of things. And a, a vast majority of kids with Pitt-Hopkins syndrome are non-speaking. And so, you know, that has a big impact because uh, 
right out the gate, we had to be really creative with, you know, figuring out, so cool, so how do we communicate? Um, and you learn that there's so many ways to communicate and, uh, you know, have incorporated sign language and um, she has some jargon, you know, kind of made up her own language uh, that consistently indicates different things that she needs, which is really helpful. Um, but yeah, she has, uh, more recently learned to call just like high support needs. So, you know, without going into too much detail, does need support with like just basic hygiene and um, getting dressed and uh, getting on the bus to school and all of that. Um, how old was she when she got diagnosed? And do you feel like there are other things going on that you feel are not diagnosed? So, to, to start with the last question, I do, I mean, I always feel like there is a, a little bit of mystery going on. And I do think that because she's young and non-speaking and there are limitations with what she can convey to us in terms of sometimes when it seems like there's pain or discomfort, it's not so much that um, I think that there's definitely certain things going on, but I think like more details of what's going on with her physically might continue to present themselves. Um, I'll just give a basic example of she does have scoliosis. Um, so she's got a, a, you know, pretty strong curvature to her spine. And I just as of recently think that it might be starting to cause some pain and discomfort and, you know, possibly some other things with that. So there definitely is always like a like a quiet period of like she is who she is and there's not much going on medically and we're not like seeking new information all the time and then there'll be a period where all of a sudden it seems like a bunch of new little things you know pieces to the puzzle pop up but um the funny thing with this is is because she she was tested really young so she got the the genetic testing at six weeks old after just being born pretty small and um, having a little trouble growing. I love to complain that the, the phrase failure to thrive needs to be thrown in the trash because it's like a pretty oh. devastating, devastating thing for a new parent, parents to hear because um, I don't think anything somebody wants their baby to do more than thrive. Um, so, but, by getting like the really thorough genetic testing so young, it sort of answers a bunch of questions right off the bat in one sense, like we have a name, we have a diagnosis, um, we know exactly, you know, there is a piece of paper somewhere that says exactly the name of all 60 genes that are missing. So she is not mysterious in that way, but what took a really long time to learn, um, and they, they don't do a great job <laughs> as, at the beginning of helping you understand this. And it's hard to understand at the beginning, but all of that means next to nothing. Um, your child's gonna grow and develop and be who they are. And they can be missing one gene or 60 genes um, and they still have their personality and they still have those quirks that they inherited from family members. And so, you know, like I never, you know, I was holding her at eight weeks old when they told me that was when the test had come back and they told me. And I'll never forget it because they literally had just explained what this, um, it was a broader 
a, a broader uh, name, uh, chromosome 18Q deletion is what she was originally diagnosed with. The Pitt-Hopkins syndrome ends up being because of one particular gene that's missing. And that was actually like a, the next diagnosis. But um, the first, the chromosome 18Q deletion, when they delivered the news and explained about it, they said, you know, there's such a huge variation in what you can expect. So, you know, some kids, do pretty darn well, but might need help with math, let's say, later on when they're in school. Um, other kids might be fully dependent on you for the rest of your lives. And, and that is true. They're not wrong that those variations exist. But it's not the most helpful information, <laughs> if anything. Like, I feel like it's a, almost like a harmful way because it's, it's too much, you know, and I remember even um, going through this strange period where I just, I literally don't think our, our like, and our souls are like able to wrap our heads around that much, that big of an extreme. Of course, what I realize now is that's, that could be true for any child. Mm -hmm. just, you know, when I had my healthy baby, you know, 12 years ago versus having April 10 years ago, you know, they, they do everything, you know, you know, to sort of do the APGAR test and they tell you that your baby's fine. Um, but nobody knows what the future holds. Nobody knows, you know, the future of any baby. And I do think that there was some like missteps <laughs> with how that, how that is communicated. Uh, to new parents. Getting an early diagnosis is scary, but it's also a blessing and a relief to figuring out the navigate, uh, figuring out how to navigate parenting, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, I really do. The, the main thing I've realized, again, is not that having a diagnosis still doesn't anything, you know, like it, it gives you, it gives you some information that this child, your child may have things in common with others that you could, um, you know, you can make like a slightly better guess perhaps as to like what supports they may need. But for me, honestly, what, you know, knowing people who don't have a diagnosis and are really seeking a diagnosis and trying to figure that out for their kids, um, I feel for them more because what they don't get is the community of people who have that exact diagnosis. And so I would say that's the biggest thing that I've gained. I can still, uh, funny enough, I could still go onto, you know, the Facebook group for parents of kids with Pitt Hopkins. And I say kids, but there's up through, you know, adults on there too. And I could see a um, four or five-year-old that starts walking. And that's not, you know, that's not what's happening with my child. She's turned 10 in March. She's not walking. Um, and I can even have that tinge of like, oh my goodness, not that, you know, you can live a wonderful life without walking. That's not like something we think about every day that we wish she were different. But it's funny because it, it just goes to show like, even when you have this same ultra rare syndrome, your kid is still going to have all these other factors that affect who they are. And so I do think that the, I, I agree that it is a blessing, um, but more so because of the community and just um, other people who get it. Yeah. 
Um, do you did she have to go through her own internalized ableism? How has that journey been towards her inner acceptance? Yeah, I mean, it's not something that she's expressed to me um, or like necessarily has been able to express to me. But what I can say is that like she's more, you know, like open and loving towards other kids than like basically anyone I've ever seen, you know, like she's she's just got. She's just like so pleasant and so um, happy to be around others. And I've never seen her, you know, get frustrated that somebody needed a minute to figure out how to communicate with her, let's say. Like, she always just is like, okay, I guess I have to do a little more here to get your attention. Um, and she doesn't get frustrated very often. So I don't, it doesn't feel like there is a big battle between like her and her body or her and her identity and it will be I think it's one of those things that's going to continue to unfold because she is sort of just technically a tween right now so we shall see <laughs> as she gets a little older what that looks like um I think I asked you this previously um hold on one second no worries Yeah, so what made you consider having an advocacy career among the community? Yeah, I mean, I think, so starting with this idea of how helpful it was for me to have my own community, you know, of people that I could reach out to and be close to, to like, figure out some stuff that was going on, or even just to get through like early hospital stays when she would have more medical things going on. And the more we were out in the world, um, like I said, at school, it was like, oh, wow, you really see how disabled kids are not welcome in most like typical school environments. And then you go to the hospital where you like expect everybody to sort of be comfortable and familiar. And there was still you know, there was even like ableist slurs being used by a nurse in front of me without even understanding how offensive that would be. And so it just, I think as the years passed, it just became really clear that in the same way that my other child who is queer, that I feel like it's my job as a parent to, I can't protect her from the, the world. I can't protect either of my kids from the world completely, but I can try to help the world be a little better, a little more accepting. Um, and so I think that really clicked. Um, and so I've had this flexibility with being with being April's full-time caregiver. So I'm lucky enough to live in a state that pays parents as caregivers. So there's in-home support services through our county and it should be everywhere. I will say that right off the bat. If I had more hours in a day to advocate, um, it is mind boggling like to learn over time that like as a country, things can vary so much because I mean it truly has been life-changing I haven't worked full-time in 10 years um since 
April was born, I ended up leaving the job I was in there. Um, and most people I say that do say, oh, you've worked more than full time. Like, <laughs> you know, I've been busy. I've been a mom. I've been doing this advocacy, advocacy stuff. And so with that, I did have some flexibility, right? Because then once April was in school and whatnot, I'd have a few more hours in my day. And it was um, about two and a half years ago, I started an Instagram account centering disability, uh, honestly, as a way to keep learning. Like I'm just really, that's just a big part of who I am is like, I can always do better. I can always know more. And a huge part of that is through connection. Um, and so like the social aspect and the like reaching out and being able to follow um, adult disabled folks, you know, young adults, like people just doing this incredible advocacy work, some of it just by sharing about their lives, you know, on social media. And I had learned very much from, like I mentioned that Facebook group in the past, like I had learned that as much as, for sure, there are some there are some evils <laughs> associated with social media. Like it's not all good, um, but that particularly for this community, like it's really a lifeline and such a source of um, you know companionship and solidarity. And so that really kind of helped amplify things because I I just really kind of hit the ground running with centering disability and just being blown away by the connections there. And again, my learning. Um, and just reaching out and connecting with people. And so that I think really solidified it. And then this year, uh, it's been almost a year, I think in August that I joined the board of Common Ground Society. So that's been a more concrete way um, to contribute locally. Uh, that nonprofit supports families of disabled kids and does disability advocacy um, and does presentations in local schools and hospitals and other businesses about inclusion and acceptance. Um, and so that's been like a very cool way uh, to just like add to and continue doing this work. Did you call out the ableism at the doctor's office in the moment? So <laughs> in the moment, no. And I will be the first, I'm like an open book. I'll be the first to admit that I can talk someone's ear off about how strongly I feel about ableist language, about ableism. I can talk to the ends of the earth. I absolutely freeze 99% of the time when somebody says a slur right in front of me. Now, have I like given a, an, a, an obvious look of like disgust and walked away? Yes, like I, I have made my point, but I tend to really lock up, you know, like it's, which is funny because I, I sure have a lot to say about it otherwise. Um, it's something I'm working through and it's something actually that I've uh, both like that time when it happened with the nurse and, and many other times I've reached out to the community on Instagram, for example, I'll, like hop onto my stories, share what happened and then, you know, throw up that comment box and let people tell me like, what's your, you know, two sentence response. You know, like, let's learn from each other. What do you say if somebody says the R word? What do you say um, if someone's staring at your kid? You know, and I, I again, I just like love that about this community because there, there is no one answer. And these things can and will happen 
regularly. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Do you have a good response? <laughs> I realize I should ask you if someone's being ableist. Do you have a good response come back that you like to share? You know, it's funny that you say that because my mom is the same way. She recognized the comments or that people don't talk directly to me, but mm -hmm. she doesn't know how to properly speak up, speak up without uh, coming off offensive or rude. Maybe it's a parenting thing. For me, I do give a look of, of unapproval or try to type something out. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder, I think I'm a very emotional person. So part of it is, I don't know that I could be effective in that moment. Like sometimes I'm just sort of, I'm instantly taken aback and hurt to the point where if I speak up right then, I might get emotional and I don't want that judgment of, um, you know, not being taken seriously or whatever. But when it's, a, when it's a stranger, that sort of means the moment is gone. Um, but when it's somebody I know, like if I caught that somebody even, you know, posted something kind of questionable or whatever, like I do try to circle back, like, and you know, have a conversation about it. But for sure, in the moment I freeze up, maybe it is a parenting thing. See, now I want to ask that. <laughs> I'm going to follow up and ask some people <laughs> on Instagram what they think about that one. Can you tell me what your personal definition of disability is? The ADA, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act, defines a person with a disability as a person who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. This includes people who have a record of such an of such impairments, even if they do not currently have a disability. It also includes individuals who do not have a disability but are regarded as having a disability. The ADA also makes it unlawful to discriminate against a person based on that person's association with a person with a disability. It's so interesting. Because um, I think what that definition, I think the piece that's missing from that definition is the, the self-identification or the lack of self-identification. Because I think for sure you got folks who likely would be considered disabled. Um, and I think like neurodivergence can fall under that where you have people who maybe have a, a mental illness or have um, autism, ADHD, other, you know, any anything like that and who maybe identify with that particular diagnosis but not with the disability sort of culture at large. Um, and it's sort of the only thing I would add because it really is, um, and maybe it's similar to like the queer community, right? Like you have people that might for themselves identify a certain way, but also distance themselves from a community. And so I do think that there's some, um, I think there's some generational stuff and I think, and hopefully she wouldn't mind me mentioning this, but I think it's really interesting because my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 17. Um, so my last year of high school was very much like her going through that treatment. Um, and uh, she'd been self-employed and, and wasn't able to work during that time. And then it turned out um, 
that, you know, several years later and she still wasn't working full time and it came back and it metastasized. And so at that point, you know, she's living with stage four cancer and she still is to this day. So that is, I'm giving away, did I already say my age? 28 years later, I think. I can't do the math. 27 years later, um, which is incredible, right? Like, love to my mom for that. Um, but one thing that I find so interesting is that, um, you know, that's a, that's a pretty significant, uh, you know, state of existence where like she receives medical care on a regular basis. She has monthly treatments still to this day for decades of her life. Um, and has had, you know, the, the sort of physical complications that go along with that, that have, you know, changed her body, changed some of her abilities, but does not, she does not identify as disabled. She wouldn't consider herself disabled. Um, she never even like applied for disability, um, for like the financial support, as far as I knew from when I was younger. And I feel like I asked her about it once like in my thirties and, and she was like, Oh no, 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 no. And it wasn't like offensive, but I think she just did want to sort of separate herself as if like admitting that her body took a pretty serious hit from this illness. Um, and, you know, as I'm saying it, I do wonder if there maybe is a difference in how people identify, um, identify as disabled comfortably based on, you know, whether it's something that's been around for all or most of their life, or if it's something that comes on later, I would imagine that there's sort of a process, you know, of like acceptance and like including themselves in that identity. Um, yeah, does that make sense? <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. My family's dealing with cancer too. I know it's hard. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. Now let's talk about your involvement in the disability community. How important is it to you surrounding language towards the disabled? I think it's hugely important. I mean, it's it's my personal perspective because like I, I self-proclaimed word nerd here, like to me, language is important and how we use it is important. <laughs> um, I was an English major. Like I have always loved to read. Like I just... I, I've always been fascinated by language and languages. And so, yeah, to me and as a writer too, like words, words matter and how we use them matters. And I'm always also really interested in like the development of language and how it's, you know, always changing. Um, and so. Same here. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. I see that smile going. I could tell. <laughs> yeah. It's. um like I would tell you for sure, like as somebody who was a parent to a disabled child, like when I when I started kind of branching out on social media to follow more um, disabled adults, like for sure, the first thing I noticed was like the reclaiming of the word cripple. And yeah, like that took, you know, like it took a minute, like I was like, like watch and learn, <laughs> you know, listen, you know, it took a minute to like watch and see how it it's used and see, you know, and it just sort of, yeah, now in my mind, it's, um, I love it, you know, like it's, it's not for me to love, but it's, it's like something that I can very much appreciate because I think that's, 
uh, one of the beauties of what language does is provides us a chance to like, yeah, that certain groups can absolutely reclaim words. And um, on the other side of that, I think uh, it's important, like my older kid has been really concerned at her middle school this past year. She just finished sixth grade and she was like blown away. It's a much bigger school than she was at before. And like so many kids use the R word on a regular basis. And I have to say, even I was shocked, like, cause I'm definitely old enough that like when I was in middle school and high school, um, like, yeah, like that word was used for sure, like all the time and with like super offensive body language to go along with it. And there were like horrible, like, you know, short bus jokes and stuff like this. Like, and it was, it wasn't even trying to pretend that you weren't making fun of disabled people. I mean, it's real, like it's, it is another whole process going back and looking at my life and going, I mean, not that I was the one like spearheading an attack on disabled people, but like for sure, anybody you know who grew up in like you know in the 80s and 90s middle school and high school like for sure there was some offensive stuff going on and same with saying like that's so gay and all that and there's moments where it's like then now flash forward and I've got a 12 year old and she's all you know on fire because she can't believe how much the r word's being used but it's interesting because she can recognize that it's both. It's like, sometimes they're saying like, you're so that, and it's meant to mean like, you're, you're stupid, you're, you know, whatever. But she also is frustrated that people are trying to use it um, and claim like, well, I'm not actually making fun of someone. I'm just saying that that's, you know, the R word, like, that's silly, that's whatever. And she like made this whole cool video, like she deals with this stuff in a creative way. Like she literally came home, grabbed my laptop, made this little video about when you use those words, um, you are actually talking about someone. Like that hurts me and my family. Um, it's not just a word and words matter and all that. So clearly like I've passed a lot of that value that like how you use and I've had I've had follow-up conversations with her friends because I've heard them say well isn't it okay if you're just kind of saying it like you might not even say it about a person you might say it about like a movie or whatever and it was like as long as you mean it in a negative way you know it's hurtful and it, it it's not any more complicated than that and so um you know, let's hope that there will be a day where our our babies are at school and not throwing around the hateful language. But um, it does seem like some of this stuff has kind of circled back, like it goes in in waves a bit. Sure. Yeah. I find the term "cripple" hilarious. I don't know <laughs> why, but I do. <laughs> That's funny. I wonder. I mean, part of it is, to be honest, like before I got like way more used to like hearing the word thinking about the word, it, um, I feel like it made me picture like Tiny Tim from like, the, I'm picturing like Mickey's Christmas Carol here, you know, like a little boy with one crutch and a limp, you know, like it's, and 
you know, which shows like my childhood association, right? Like obviously that's coming from some little kid part of my brain where I would have associated that. Um, I tell you, I wonder if um, you think like Crip Camp coming out and being such like a, a respected and incredible film, like I wonder if that has sort of helped really solidify like pushing non-disabled people to just like be a little more okay with that word being reclaimed and being more like comfortable with it. Have you faced discrimination in schools because of your child's disability? Oh yeah. Um, so the, the biggest way that that happened was like right out of the gate, trying to enroll her in kindergarten in our local districted elementary school, which is where her big sister was. So her big sister's two years ahead of her. And I knew that there might be like some challenge to it, you know, like going for inclusion, you know, just, I obviously, I had been on the campus for a couple of years. So I got the general sense that there weren't a bunch of disabled kids there, but also like, I don't make assumptions. Like there could be kids that I don't know are disabled or, or whatever. So I decided like, let's, we're going to bring her and we're going to, you know, go to that first meeting, um, trying to like hold strong to this idea that, especially for kindergarten, right? Because, you know, I'm the kind of person, and even when I worked in education, like, you know, I don't think school is or ever should be 100% about academics. It's an important part, but they're also, you know, learning how to be in the world and be together and nowhere more so than kindergarten, right? I mean, they're just barely learning to like share a toy or kind of sit still to hear a story. And so I thought, is she even that different from kids at that age, you know? So I went in, you know, pretty solidly, you know, my husband and I, we go into that meeting and it was so clear right, you know, from the start of the meeting that the whole thing was geared towards pushing us away from choosing that school. Um, and there was a teacher there from the local special education program, which is housed at a different school completely. So all the kids from like across the county, if they don't end up in their local district school, they all get bussed over to a particular school. And, um, and at the time, the woman who was leading that school, who was the kindergarten through, uh, I think, second grade teacher was so exceptionally good. Like she was a very, she was like that very like unique, special, so highly qualified. She actually ended up that year being California teacher of the year. Like she's really legitimately incredible. So this also it sort of like worked for and against us in the end April ended up at this other school with this really incredible teacher but at the time I was trying to push back against that a bit and say um you know hey we want her here with her sister and so what happened was they pretty immediately were like well if she went here like we don't have all the you know we don't have like the physical therapist here with like all the cool equipment and stuff, but over there, they're already set up for that. Like half that room is like a, you know, is like a gym and they they have all these cool things and they've got swings and adaptive tricycles and this and that. 
and I, I like roughly knew the concept that like she should be able to go wherever she wants and wherever we would like her to go and that the services come to her, but I didn't like know it in my bones the way I do now, like of what, excuse my French, like bullshit discrimination that was like, nobody should be saying that. Like there's no place that is special education. Like special education is a bunch of services provided to my disabled kid. And they very much made me feel like, ooh, she's got so much going on. We don't really know that this is the best place for her. And, you know, in a funny way, I realize I'm getting, I'm like making this connection that it feels like when a doctor tells you your child's failure to thrive and they start suggesting things like a G-tube, which we did get. And it was like one of the best things we did for our child. But you're putting these positions where people say, you know, well, you can try it and see what happens. But I mean, really, this other thing is like going to just be the best possible thing for her. And you're a little bit like, damn, do I have the strength as a parent to push up against these people who kind of seem like they know what they're doing and who are you know, let's face it, they're in the position of power there. I am, you know, I was a younger mom at that time than I am now. And I was less experienced with all of it. And so ultimately they were like, well, you should at least visit the classroom over there. And then of course I visit the classroom and it it is, it's freaking amazing. They have all the stuff, you know, they have aids that are exceptional. Um, it, it was an amazing place for her. So I don't, it's like, so part of me doesn't regret it. Like she landed where she landed, but to this day, I'm, I'm bitter with the district. I bring it up meetings still when it's relevant. I bring it up when, um, I will tell you the most recent time I brought it up actually was in the fall. There was a school board meeting and I had to actually, I actually got up and, spoke because the 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 cbo like the the business officer was like reporting financials and you know it costs our local school district money still even for april to go elsewhere like so they were going over something like the busing right like and it's it's hundreds of thousands of dollars a year like it is not a small amount for all the kids to be bused elsewhere and she she kept saying and this goes back to the language part too. She goes, oh, so, you know, we've got the special ed kids going here and there. And then this line is because the special ed kids. And I like just hit a point where I got up to the microphone and I said, I just really, really need to say it um, because this we're you all are the school board and should be better educated than this. Like there is no such thing as a special ed kid. Like my kid is a kid first. She's a student. She is disabled and she is uh, like, we live in this school district, you know, therefore the fact that you all made it almost impossible for her to attend school within this district, that was your call. And yeah, now you're paying for the bus to go elsewhere, but that like no parent should sit here and have to hear that that's inconvenient or expensive or have their kid be called a special ed kid like that just seriously like this needs to be the last the last meeting where that language is used like it's just unacceptable 
Um, and I said, and by the way, like if you're complaining about um, the cost of it, like we all know special education is like drastically underfunded in our state. So like, let's go to Sacramento together. Like, can we do something about it? You know, as opposed to just meeting after meeting, reporting out on those numbers, like, oh, poor us, we got to pay for this child, educate my child. I'll drive her to school like every other parent does, you know, but you aren't doing that. And so, yeah, you're going to pay for that bus to come to our house every day. And so all that to say, ways learning more about how to advocate and when to speak up and um, when thing like it's much more clear now when things are discriminatory, you know, whereas I think way back to that kindergarten thing, it was like, well, maybe they do want what's best for my kid. And now I look back and I go, no, they wanted what was easiest for them. And what they have, you know, she's about to go into fifth grade. And what they have now is a school that still has either none or almost no, at least visibly disabled kids. And so all those other kids going to the school have completely also lost out on the opportunity to have April as a classmate, to, you know, experience being around disability and to just like, honestly, like be better people because of it. <laughs> so they're lost. People are glorifying segregations in school, segregation in school still. It's full of shit, mm -hmm. but they do it now by ability yep. instead of race. A thousand percent, yes. And I name it as that. I call it segregation. And if people push back and they say, well, isn't that more when it, when it was about race? And I'm like, first of all, it is what it is. My daughter is in a program that is at a local elementary school, but it's not even part of the elementary school. It's its own like special education consortium. And our kids are literally in portables, like on the way back of campus where you, if you went to the main school, you could literally not even realize that they're there. Like they are hidden away. <laughs> it is so separate when we, um, when they have picture days, our kids have been forgotten or stuck doing their pictures last because someone had already made the flyer and was like, oh, what about those kids? Like it's everything is like those kids. Oh, they're having an assembly at school. Oh, what about those kids? And part of that is structural because it's its own consortium that has kids come from all these other districts. It's how the money flows. It's how the staffing goes. But like, it's not that wild to think as a parent, if your kid is on this other school's campus and they have, you know, a fall carnival or something, how, like, why would our kids not be invited and involved? And, you know, like you would think that it's like, it would be a pretty natural connection to make. And there's, there are some kids with different levels of inclusion services. So some are spending, you know, maybe half the day in a typical classroom and half in ours. But, um, but it is that, again, that's not what school's about, you know, like, there's parent nights and there's, you know, family events and there's field trips and it's all super segregated. And then the, the race thing, I mean, let's be real, the vast majority 
um, historically from when April went into preschool of her classmates have been Latino or black. Um, like definitely you can tell that because we live in a really white county in Northern California um, that's sort of seen as like cool and liberal and there you definitely would think that there would be more white kids in class but what is very likely happening is that white families are you know putting their kid into like a private program or being very particular about where they're going so that they're not just in, you know, it's like another version of white flight from public schools, you know, but on a whole other level. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty infuriating. Um, and I will say too, that as somebody that like worked in, in after school education for a long time, and like the, the story I tell is that I got my master's degree in equity and social justice in education at San Francisco State University, which is like very, it's a great school and it's badass that that is even a thing, equity and social justice in education, right? Um, the entire program, uh, special education was not mentioned once, disabled folks not mentioned once. And we were, all we talked about was in school being marginalized and I didn't know any better. And, you know, like, it's kind of, it, I, I hate to say that now, um, but the assumption I, I'm making is that from the school's perspective, if you were interested in disability, you'd be in a program, you'd be getting your master's in special education. Otherwise, why would we even be talking about it? So in a way that segregation starts even when you're training people who are likely going to like be teachers or work in education, you're teaching them that disabled kids are, are different and separate and, you know, that that's a whole separate program. And I, I look back now and I think what a loss, because you did have people that were really interested in like thinking critically and looking at intersectionality and all of that. And again, like this is San Francisco state, like we're talking about that campus is like a few miles from where like the 504 protests happen. And it's also like a school that like created ethnic studies. Like this is not, this is like a progressive school and still disabilities like down there. And they do now have the Longmore Institute on Disability, which is fantastic. Like, and I, you know, I'm really interested in what they're doing, but at the time they didn't. And so I hope things are changing, you know, like let's hope. Yeah. What kind of learning environment would be would work better for your daughter specifically? Yeah, I think that she I mean, I think that she would do great in a typical classroom. Um, she does need she needs the services she needs. So she's going to kind of always be the kid that that gets kind of pulled out to do some amount of like speech therapy. Um, adaptive PE in the sense that like, she's gonna need the adaptive gear, but like totally could be doing that alongside any other kind of students. Um, just something very like engaging and hands-on, like she's very tactile, sensory, um, also needs that quiet time, that quiet corner, but like, don't, 
don't we all? <laughs> um, and so it has been interesting because even being in what's labeled as the moderate to severe um, classroom, so the kids that, you know, are presumably like higher support needs, she, since in preschool, she was among like lots of other kids that were also non-speaking and also used wheelchairs, for example, like also maybe had a feeding tube and had epilepsy and, you know, very similar to her. Once um, she got into elementary school, though, pretty much most of the kids in her classroom are like running circles around her, talking and all of that. Um, and she loves it. And in my opinion, what difference does it make if it's those kids or like, you know, quote, typical kids? Like she she could always have thrived anywhere, I guess, is, <laughs> is part of what I'm saying. Does your child April get the accommodations you request? Yeah, she's a very, there is this weird perk of being labeled severely, you know, severely disabled on paper because she's, she is not denied much of anything, um, usually. So when she's in school, she gets, you know, OT and PT and all the, <laughs> all the abbreviations out there um, where, where this all kind of really came to a head and there was there was a huge loss was with the pandemic and especially because of having some she's not officially immunocompromised but she is like more medically complex and so like covid was a you know avoiding covid was like a huge concern for years and so as a family we were locked down pretty significantly longer um than than most other families and children in particular yeah yep and uh so for her that meant not really going back to school till this current school year um and it was it was pretty shocking i'm still I'm still pretty bitter, to be honest, like the way that all went down, she was receiving about six to eight hours on average a week of Zoom, like active, you know, Zoom time. So like morning circle with her friends and like they would go through the calendar or whatever. And then she'd have some one on one time with like a speech therapist. And then um, but then when it came to like physical therapy or adaptive PE or whatever, it's Zoom, but obviously I'm highly involved. And I was highly involved in all of it because it's not some, she can't access a Zoom lesson or even morning circle without like an adult physically helping her and helping with communication and whatnot. And so for those six to eight hours, I was there the whole time, like helping. And then additionally, uh, I was with her the entire rest of the time. So we're going from, she used to get, you know, six hours of school per day <laughs> to like, that's what she's getting per week. And I feel like I, I kind of begged and pleaded, you know, like the other kids were back in school. And I do understand that there's that balance of like, you know, the teacher was trying to be creative and, um, 
this was no longer the teacher that was the California teacher of the year, but this is her like upper grade teacher. And, you know, bless her heart, she was trying, but she's got a, a classroom of kids and they just didn't have sort of the resources. And I assumed that we would like figure out a solution and like time kept going and going and it wasn't. And, you know, um, I mentioned earlier, I'm paid as a caregiver. So part of me is like, well, thank God, like I didn't have to like leave my full-time job this year because of this. Cause I don't know how anybody would have handled that. Right. You have a kid that you have to keep home. Um, and you have to like do their schooling and you have to somehow work full-time. That was like every parent's problem for the first, let's say year and a half or something of the pandemic. Everyone got a little taste of how hard that would be, but then everyone else's kids went back to school and we're still in it. And it was like the forgotten, you know, and I'm well aware that there's families still going through that today. And maybe it's flipped where, you know, okay, they can't get those services. So they've had to leave and now it's homeschool, you know, there's been an adjustment, but um, I feel like we were failed. Like our families were really kind of failed and left to do and take on so much and even getting paid. It's not like the, the um, government came through and like, was like, oh, we already pay you as a caregiver. Uh, and we recognize that you're now like teaching all day. Uh, let's compensate you somehow for that. You know, like it's no, none of that happened. There wasn't even advocacy around that. I mean, it just was like, boy, that sounds hard. You must be exhausted. <laughs> yep. And, you know, of course, that was extremely hard, too, because the the social, you know, the lack of social interaction for April was rough. She that girl was sick of me. She definitely that was when that was when she learned how to turn her whole body away from me in her wheelchair when she wasn't having it. That's when she um, solidly started rolling her eyes at me. You know, all all of that came out <laughs> that time of the pandemic, for sure. The pandemic isn't over, but apparently this yeah. is like the best it's going to get to being over. I know. It's frustrating. Yeah. It really is frustrating. Um, and we did, you know, February is when we got sick and it was, um, sorry, that, you know, we all got sick and it started with the kids and we're not exactly sure, but, you know, one of most likely big sister brought it home from school and they're, they're, you know, in our family too, there's like a whole lot of like weighing the, the mental health, you know, like it, it felt like we couldn't keep our kids home any longer. Like they just really needed to be back and things were a lot safer. I will say that um, I was able to get it added into April's IEP that um, the, the whole classroom is required to mask, um, adults and kids. And, you know, there's, there's an exception and I'm okay with that because this is a group of disabled kids and there's somebody that like, can't keep their mask on, but if they get close to April, they put on one of those little shields. Um, and it's a pretty small class. It's like under 10 kids. So, I mean, but I was able to get that in the IEP and that's still to this day. And I, I was worried that once, I lost track, but, you know, a few months back when it was like, you know, supposedly proclaimed that it, it's all over and 
um, that there'd be no more requirements in schools. I was, I was definitely a little worried. I was kind of braced and thinking, I didn't want to bring it up first. I was thinking, oh, are they going to say they're not going to require masks anymore? And actually, to their credit, they very much have still held strong with that. And there have been she, you know, there have been COVID exposures at school even as recently as like uh, two or three weeks ago, even in a class that small, like one kid had COVID and, you know, so like she was potentially exposed. Um, but so those masks are helping all of us, you know, and I'm really glad for that. Um, and so, you know, I talked about the discrimination at school, but I should also give them some credit because they have taken more seriously that this is a group of kids that should be protected and um, and all of that. So, yeah. You mentioned that she has an IEP. Does she have a 504 plan? No, just an IEP. Yeah. And it is <laughs> this thick because she has, you know, she's got so many services. So it's, it is detailed. It's like a small novel. <laughs> have you found a support group um, more in parents or actual adults with disabilities like myself? Has it been a mixture of both? Hmm. I'd say definitely a mixture. And that's really, I feel like that's like where, um, I feel like that is what has helped me become who I am right now. Like I think having only one perspective or the other would be really difficult. Like as a parent, there really just are things that are parenting questions or parenting concerns where you like always want, you know, there's, you know, there is the uniqueness to parenting a disabled child that's undeniable, but that doesn't make you an expert at disability per se. Like it's having friendships with and having connections with disabled folks and kind of like being involved in that community. And I just had a really good conversation about that with a friend of mine who is disabled. And uh, we were talking about, you know, the potential of creating like a disability pride event in our community. And she said it, which was, you know, good to hear because I'm the parent and I'm the one that like says like, we, we need everybody, right? Like it can't just, like I wouldn't create a disability pride event like without involving disabled people. But she was saying from her perspective as well, like, you know, having the parents involved is, is huge and families because it really isn't just parents and that's another thing really it's it's also siblings right and it's aunts and other caregivers and all of it's important and um we're, we're fighting a pretty big fight i don't know if you noticed that <laughs> we're fighting a pretty big fight here so it's like we we just have to we got to work together and um yeah, it definitely, you know, like with anything, I think any kind of advocacy comes, people people get their really strong beliefs um, and probably have pretty good reason for them why they think like, no, I only want to work with this group or no, I'm only comfortable working with, with this other. But I just, at this point, like if everything we're doing isn't intersectional, like, and kind of calling on whoever's ready to step up, I think that we're kind of doing ourselves a disservice, so. Uh, do these connections that you made make you feel less alone than before? Oh, yeah. And it's it's really kind of night and day because when um, when April was first born, I'm not even sure. 
like I probably, yeah, I think I had Facebook and that was it, but like, I didn't have as strong, I had zero local community. I can tell you that. Like I had nothing. I didn't have a support group. I didn't know anybody with a disabled kid. I didn't know disabled people. Um, I, I had none of it. And so like, I had to really seek that. And so now having like, now my community is so big. It's like, I can't keep up. There's too many events on Saturday. There's too much going on. Like, you know, it's like any other social group, you know, like you, you can't do everything. So it's, um, it's way different now. And, um, I, I never, I literally never feel alone in it at all. If anything, like the way my mind works and the way, like I see it is like, I now know so many people, even if it's just on a more surface, like we follow each other, but I, I, I like store that information away. Like, Oh, if I ever have a question about epilepsy, this is who I go to. If I, if I have a question about like school stuff, this is who I can talk to, you know, because again, like April's got so many layers of disability that I really need that, you know, like there are specific questions, you know, and there are ways in which even in my closest tight-knit group of parenting friends, parents of kids with disabilities, like my kid doesn't talk and that's like a pretty big difference, you know, like she can't just tell me loud and clear right off the bat, my stomach hurts, you know, it's communicated in different ways. And that's just a unique experience that like, I sometimes I just need to talk to somebody else who gets that specific thing. And so the bigger my circle is, the more likely, you know, I'm, I am to just like not feel alone in all of it. Sure. Um, you mentioned disability pride events. As people mm -hmm. know, this YouTube show is sponsored by a disability festival called Festibility. It's definitely needed everywhere. And yes. uh, I have another person who you can reach out to about, about school accommodations and rights if you have questions. That's fantastic. And that is another reason I love this community. We are full of resources. <laughs> it's great. I would love that. Um, what after-school programs are you wanting to see for disabled kids? Uh, any. <laughs> this is another one of those, like, when I look back in hindsight at what, like, I wish I had known earlier. I ran after-school programs from when I was 19 years old. And I, even in that first year, like, I had kids in the program that were definitely disabled. And... It's so hard to acknowledge now, but even, you know, when you talk about even late 90s, like there was this very like not helpful, like it was still like the melting pot theory, you know, like we're all people and don't treat people as different. And, and so it was like, on the one hand, like maybe sometimes that helped because we, you know, included everybody. But then like also, no, like you need to name what makes everybody different and you can only meet certain needs if you're able to acknowledge that. And that goes for race as well. And, um, you know, sexuality and all kinds of things that I feel like, I was sort of like trained to ignore that in a way. And then over time, and that's why eventually 
just from working and working and going, no, 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 like these, I'm working so much better with these kids when we focus on what's different, not in a negative way, but just like in a, like that's, that's how you help people um, and get to know people and who they really are. And so that's why eventually, like I really started focusing on the social justice and, and equity. And even within all that, though, while you did get disabled kids in there, um, first of all, they weren't the Aprils of the world. Like we didn't have non-speaking kids and we didn't have kids in wheelchairs. Um, I think about, uh, we didn't even have an elevator to the first, like to not the first, the first program I ran in San Francisco was on the second floor. We didn't even so much as have an elevator. And we went down to bathrooms that were two store, two stories down without an elevator. And I just think now about like, the access issues. And I just think right now, I don't know of a single after school program that, um, that like explicitly and wholeheartedly welcomes disabled kids. Like I don't know anybody in a, in a special education program like April's in right now, they're not offering after school, nor do they like have any recommendations of anywhere particularly helpful which goes back to how do they expect families to manage that without like one parent that just isn't going to work full time because that means my child's home by you know 2 p.m. every day in the summer it's 1 p.m. what you know it's just like here you go figure it out and the figuring it out means you either have to have money to pay someone you know and it's not easy like you gotta you have to slash should be paying someone pretty well like to work with a kid like april because you know it's there's there's a lot of caregiving it's more than just like here's a year go have a snack and look at your ipad or watch some tv you know it's more involved um or you have a parent home and so it's um it just goes back to that sort of like systemic stuff that I think keeps people, you know, in different socioeconomic circumstances based on, you know, disability in their, in their family. Why was starting your Instagram centering disability important to you? Yeah. I mean, as I've said in a few different ways, like I think it's just the the connection and the community um so such a big part of it like I said has been just like being active and getting to like follow different people and learn and then in terms of actually like creating on there um I've actually just always been like a creative person like I will fully admit like it was fun to to get Canva and start messing around and going oh this is like a pretty good outlet for me to do some advocacy Again, I'm not working full time, but I actually do have some time to sit and I can like process these thoughts a little bit about what do I want to say? What are the things that I'm always kind of trying to convey to people in my life? And how can I like simplify it to, you know, just be a post that I hope people can learn from and I hope people can share from. I definitely think like the educator in me loves it for that, you know? Um, and And then I like, I love getting the response, like not necessarily, I mean, whatever, it's fun when a bunch of people like you're real or something, but 
the the likes are kind of one thing but for me it's it's comments and it's the people that reach out in dms and it's like the really thoughtful kind of questions and response um that's been like the probably the best part of it uh we recently talked in dms about having a diversity committee at the school can you tell me about that yeah um it's been a ride <laughs> we just finished our second year having a DEIB, so Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging Committee at our at our school district, which is a very small school district. Um, and again, like our community is very predominantly white. And then with um, with a decent size, but definitely smaller Latino community and um, a, a way smaller, you know, Asian or Black communities. And um, we, you know, we started it like as parents and teachers and staff that just were like, we can be doing better. Like there's a lot of issues for me coming, coming in. I was immediately like, hey, one of my big concerns is like, where's the disabled kids? Like, why aren't they like going to our community schools? Um, so I very much wanted to speak to that, but then also having the experience like, all the after school program, everything I worked in, I had not worked with more than like two white kids at a time. Like that was my experience was almost predominantly working with black kids, Latino, um, and again, not disabled because they just weren't, you know, like a sprinkling, but not as much. And so it, um, you know, I definitely want to be the voice on like bringing some perspective in a couple layers but i also was always very aware that like because of the makeup of where we live and we're in like wine country it's just expensive as hell to live here now um so there's like even less families able to you know find housing here and so like school enrollment is dropping every year and so you're losing some of the diversity you're losing um a lot and then you're also losing folks um who are leaving public schools to go to like fancy you know fancy public uh private schools and whatnot and um yeah i think uh probably in the dms i was mentioning it in uh about what happened this year with it which was that our the main focus of it was trying to support the kids from our GSA in the middle school who have been advocating for a pride flag for a progress pride flag to be hung on campus and we uh did not have success with that and discovered that we do have a school board that unfortunately is majority um it's not a big board but it's a you know three to two majority folks that are conservative and that are not going to be supporting um the pride flag being raised on campus and it, it's been um, a year of me really diving in hard with, uh, like I'll say like the prior couple years had been very focused on April and her schooling and advocating for, you know, all of that with the distance learning and me taking on all of that. And then this school year in a way that a little bit took a back seat, actually very much took a back seat because I really dove in hard with volunteering for the GSA and kind of getting a handle on like helping the kids advocate for themselves. It's kind of mostly seventh graders with some sixth and eighth, but it's kind of everybody, um, this like incredible group from the GSA 
Um, and we're all like showing up at all the school board meetings and uh, we hosted like the school's first um, Harvey Milk Day event. And we got to go to the county office of ed pride flag raising, which is pretty funny when your own small school district won't support it, but the county does. And then like the California Department of Education got that flag raised <laughs> that same week too. And we're going, um, okay, our district's just kind of clinging, clinging to some past here. But um, so what we're really discovering is that we're having more power as parents coming together outside of the district, you know, because if the administration isn't supporting the work, it doesn't mean you stop it, right? Like we're still, we're, we're doing it. And if anything, we kind of got more done this year, like, like those events um, and the field trips and whatnot, because we just kind of had the fire under us and did not want to let, um, you know, let anyone stop that just because a few people, a few people disagreed. So it's been, yep, yet another one of these learning so much as I go. And I will say one thing is um, that really solidified this year is just how much intersection there is with the queer community and the disabled community. Because I don't think there was a single event that I was at that was um, disability focused, that didn't have a big queer presence and vice versa, like a LGBTQIA event that didn't have like a large presence of disabled folks. And so like, it was nice to sort of start to feel kind of like at home with that, um, that intersection. And, and that's who we are as a family, you know, I have a queer kid, I have a disabled kid and um, I'm going to do what needs to be done for both of them. That's awesome. Uh, can you tell us about the Common Ground Society? What is it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Common Ground Society is a relatively new nonprofit, just a few years old. So I'm pretty honored that I was asked to be on the board this past year. Um, so Common Ground Society does presentations on inclusion and acceptance at hundreds of schools in the area each year. Um, so mostly directly to the kids, but then also comes out and does some, um, you know, workshops for teachers and whatnot. And then also with that expanded to do, um, to do presentations for hospitals and businesses. So like the hospitals, that's exciting because, you know, the situation I mentioned earlier, like it's really nice to be going to some of the larger medical providers in the area and be like, hey, this is the, this is some of the parent perspective. And this is some of how our kids would prefer that you were communicating with them. And so bettering that. Um, and so I haven't been doing the presentations specifically, but it's, that was a huge draw for me of why like the organization is really exciting and I wanted to support them. And then the other huge piece is um, just building community for families with disabled kids. And so there are family meetups like quite regularly, and then also um, caregiver meetups. And these are all held like sort of intentionally all around the county, like so that it's not just one location so that hopefully anyone can have a chance to come and join. Um, and there are no costs to the families. And it's truly just like about being together and, you know, sharing resources and 
or commiserating on what's going, you know, what's frustrating about, you know, therapy right now or schools and sharing resources and stuff. So, um, yeah. And then, you know, in terms of the community, it, it's even right down to if somebody, um, I'll give an amazing example. There was, there was, we do hospital bags. So for new parents, and this is, I mean, when I tell you like, this is what I wished I had when April was born. And now knowing that we can provide this for other families, I mean, it's, it's truly amazing. So we have, you know, hospital bags with, you know, like a coffee mug and a gas card and a restaurant gift card and a a blanket and books for the kids and, and things like that. And there was a message went out in our Facebook group, parent group that said, Hey, there's a new baby coming, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember if it was that they were going to need heart surgery really soon, you know, something where they knew that there were going to be some medical complexities right out the gate. Um, so it was, okay, we've got a family and I have the bag ready. Is anybody going to Oakland in the next, you know, couple days? And from the time that the parent originally, like, let my colleague know that that need was there to when the bag was handed to the family at the hospital was, it was like 17 hours. Like just that network was there and everyone is just like, ready to go and eager to help. And then that family gets this letter that says, you know, basically like, welcome and congratulations, you know, because sometimes you're not even hearing the congratulations when that kid is born who is disabled or has some other kind of like medical stuff going on. And so it's like, we're here, like, whenever you're ready, like, reach out. And, and so just to, you know, I, you know, I mourn, honestly, that I didn't have that, but like to know that that's happening for other families, like means the world. And so, and because we're new, it feels like this is kind of just the beginning. Like we, you know, we're ready to take over the world. So many ideas. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so right now we're mostly uh, serving Sonoma County, but also like a little bit of reaching out to other areas in the Bay Area. And um, it's really exciting. How do you feel about inspiration porn as a parent? My mom refuses to understand the issue. Oh, that's interesting. That is so interesting. Well, and I, it's, almost can see it from like a loving mom perspective of, oh, isn't it nice? Like whenever someone is so kind to a disabled person or a disabled person does something you didn't think they were gonna be able to do, like, I feel like that's the common sort of defense of it, right? Is, oh, isn't it always sweet? And I would say maybe in a hundred years, it could be charming, but like right now, disabled people are not, like universally not considered as equals to a non-disabled person. Like that's a pretty undeniable fact. And we've already named like all the way, right? At hospitals, at schools, at churches, at anywhere, you know? And so if that's the case, any kind of like inspirational stuff that's shared is sort of automatically kind of 
keeping disabled people in their place like that. Like, oh, how cute, you know, it, it, you know, it can infantilize them. It can, um, yeah, it just, it's like, we're families and disabled people are not like here to be a lifetime movie. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's almost as if that's the only positive portrayal we've seen of disabled folks is if they do something inspirational. Like, God forbid they're like cool and accepted just because like they happen to have a good sense of humor or a cool fashion sense or, or like something else that we give other people kind of way too much credit for having. It leads to abuse. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it justifies, um, it's like a self-feeding cycle, right? Because then people will respond to it so positively. Like I tend to jump right to the comments when I see that stuff. And sometimes I shouldn't because I know what the comments are going to be like, right? They're going to be like, bless that, bless that child. Like, you know, all this stuff that's like over the top complimentary. And so then all that does is then like encourage more people to, you know, share the same kind of stories. Um, the obvious, like most ridiculous one is like, somebody takes a disabled date to the prom. And I'm like, yeah, it just, and like, can you, it's, if I had all the time and cre creative energy and resources in the world, like I feel like you could do so many good sketches about like do the same thing and just be like, oh, I brought, you know, I'm Jewish. Like, should somebody like get a, an award if they bring me to on a date or something? It just, it's like, <laughs> if you were to insert, if you took out disabled person and like inserted any other identity marker, it would be instantly seen as like wildly offensive but that doesn't click for people when you're sharing you know the inspiration porn and it is about disabled folks it's kind of mind-boggling <laughs> yeah was there anything else you wanted to discuss was there anything else you wanted to discuss today that we didn't touch on oh it's such a good question i actually i'm just curious because i noticed at the beginning that you identified as nonverbal. And I'm, I just want to ask because it's one of those interesting language switches that I've only like in the past year heard more about, which is um, people choosing to say non-speaking versus non-verbal. I'm totally just curious your thoughts on that. As an author, to me, it's literally just like a synonym. LOL, when I obviously want to keep people up with the new updated terminology, but I don't know if there's much of a difference. Also, I say nonverbal, but I can say a few words. And the more people around me, they will understand some words. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I, I guess I had always assumed that they were they were synonymous as well. And then um, I've started just trying on saying that April's non-speaking. And I have noticed, I actually have noticed a little bit that people will go, oh, so then how does she communicate? Versus when I have said nonverbal and it's like they just expect her to just like be sitting there quiet with no thoughts 
and no opinions and nothing to say. And it's it's subtle, but I I have noticed that a little bit. So it's kind of like an ongoing thing. And I'm just um, I'm yeah, I'm just so curious to talk to other people about it. Now I get it. Yeah, I think that that I think it's more almost for the person on the receiving end when they hear non-speaking. Oh, they don't speak. So what? Okay, what are you using to get your point across then? But who knows? This why language is interesting, right? <laughs> Definitely. All right. Thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I did. I appreciate the insights that you provided as well. If people want to connect with you and support the work that you do, where can they do so? Yeah, thank you so much, Sean. This is great. And you were very patient with me having to postpone a while. So I appreciate that. <laughs> and it's really, it's really awesome to talk to talk with you. Um, so I am on Instagram at centering disability and uh also, you can check out Common Ground Society at commongroundsociety.org um, and on all the socials. So those are both great ways to learn about what I'm up to and to meet April and uh, get to know a little bit more about us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on, Andrea. Take care. I'll make sure to share everything in my description below. Once again, I'm Sean Gold. Thank you for watching. Make sure you like, comment all your thoughts, and subscribe. Also, make sure the bell is on to be notified of each upload. I'll see you next time on another episode of Crippled by Culture. Want to listen to Crippled by Culture on your favorite podcast platform? Well, now you can. Crippled by Culture is now available wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search up the show title and make sure you subscribe. Thank you for being a listener.